0: Hey kids, I'm Michelle Carlo, and this show is Fish Out of Agua on Radio Free Brooklyn. Today is Tuesday, August 29, 2017. Summer is drawn to a close, but I'm still playing the summer songs from my, well, I would say my well-spent youth, although I pretty much was in the single digits when this thing came out, this thing, this song came out. Yep, the summer of soul and sand and sun. Well, maybe not so much sand and sun because it's been a pretty cool summer. Anyway, I like this song and I hope you do too. We're back with Fish Out of Agua on Radio Free Brooklyn. That was Am I the Same Girl from the late Barbara Ackland's Seven Days of Night album back in 1968. Oh my god, that was a summer of soul. Do you, do you guys know that the climate, let's say the social slash political climate in the United States, was relatively similar back then to the way it is now, if not? even more intense. I was eight that summer of 1968, so I really wasn't aware of much besides like Barbie dolls and learning stuff (laughs) and falling asleep in the back of my uncle's VW 1968 bus listening to music like this on WABC Music Radio back then. But grown-ups... We're afraid. People thought that it was the world was going to an end. People really thought that the world was going to the, to an end. I mean, it wasn't just the Cold War with the Soviet Union and you know, other maniacs today throwing um, shooting off rockets and missiles and stuff. But people really thought that the systems were about to break down, and, and a lot of people weren't sure what was going to be in its place. Kind of like today, huh? It's like if you don't learn from history. You are condemned to repeat it. And on that note, I'm going to um, play a song that our guest artist picked to open her interview. It's from a band. No, I'm not even going to tell you what the name of it is. I'm going to tell you after. And you're going to know why I said that, whoa, this kind of fits in with what we're talking about today.
1: making a- Counting the
0: That was 5 for Fighting and 100 Years from their 2003 album, The Battle for Everything. I guess the title of the album made me make that comparison to 1968. Yeah, battle, everything. But really what the song made me think that was the comparison for what we were speaking about earlier is that the more you think stuff changes, the more stuff stays the same. And we only get so many times around to get stuff right, kids. You know, tomorrow's not promised, and yes, you're 15 for a moment, you're 23 for a moment, you're 35 for a moment, you're 41 for a moment, you're 56 for a moment, and on and on and on, and not everybody gets to be old. Think about that. Think about that. Use uh, youngins out there. Use youngs. I don't even want to use the word millennial because I hate those friggin' labels, but you who, like, look at older people or elders, or whatever you want to call us, with disdain or whatever. It's like, oh, they're not walking fast, blah, 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 blah. You don't even know, like, what is in somebody. And if you live, if you have the privilege to get older, then you will know. A man named Oscar Wilde, who was a really good writer, and, yeah, and other things, said, youth is wasted on the young. Think about that. You might want to take notes, kids, because right now it's time for my favorite part of the show: fish out of Agua's guest artists of the week, and this poet, performance artist, community arts activist, and educator is definitely gonna teach you something. Teach you, and learn yours too. <laughs> Welcome to my favorite part of the show. It's Fish out of Hogwarts, guest artist of the week. I know, every week I say it's my favorite part of the show, but it is, and I'm sitting here today with one of my favorite people, my performer, writer, poet, educator, activist, Elder, oh my god, we're gonna have so much fun with this
2: woman. Please welcome to Pichetabagua, Maria Aponte. Yay, thank you, Michelle, for inviting me to be interviewed on your um show. This is really amazing, all the good stuff that you're doing and branching out and interviewing artists. Uh, I had the pleasure of listening to a couple of your um iPods. Oh, you did, Um, I did, and I really liked the format. Oh, cool, to be very intimate and very who did you listen to? Um, I listened to Angela. you, Yao, Yao. Oh, Angel Yao. Angel Yao. Yes, yeah. I listened to her and I thought it was I just said, "Wow, this is cool." Oh, thanks. Yeah, yeah, yeah you just Congratulations.
0: Thank you. Yeah, just two friends sitting down and having a conversation. Um, so here's the big question that I ask everybody up front. Maria, how the hell did we meet or where? Wow. Yes. We met uh, I know.
2: Doing, a, doing reading. a reading, doing a reading. We were doing a read. We've known each other for a long time. All uh, right. We met. How doing long? A reading. I would say more than ten. Ten years, years right? Mm-hmm. So, was I doing a reading with the, the fish? With my fish out of agua book? You were doing it with the book, but it was also that we were invited to read together. Oh, okay. In my memory. Is All right. Because I, know that I... We've, we've we've been we've performed together. Yes. We've we've read together many times. Many times, at different kind of venues. Uh I think one of them was the New Eureka Poets Cafe. Yes, that yes. We did an old woman's reading. Mm-hmm. And of course, my favorite was the last. One, which was at the Bronx Museum. Oh yeah, for that women's was great. Women's History Month when we did Women's Bronx Stories. Yes, and I told a story, and, and you told, told a, a story. story. Yeah, and so I was I was the MC for that night. That was an amazing um, night. And then we know each other through our mutual friend Robin Beatty. That's right, the yeah, storyteller. Storyteller. So we've been in and out of, in and out of each other's lives periodically performing. Um, one of the things that always attracted me to you was not only your bubbly, energetic, loving spirit, but the fact that you are also very heavily invested in theater. Um, you understand the one-person shows. You, you, you. Um, we, so we have that in common because we we both have one-woman shows, um, and it just continues. So we've kind of known each other before a lot of this technology. I know. Are, that we're fussing about with lately. Well,
0: I think Twitter's only like nine years old or something. So, I mean, like, if you think about 10 years ago, uh, 2007, right? So... Wait, my book came out in 2010. Excuse me. 2000 will be longer than that. My book came out in 2010, so that's uh 7 years ago. So that must be yes, But you when? Were,
2: you were performing pieces of it before yes, you put it yes, into the book. Yes. Yes,
0: yes, I've been performing pieces of it for uh, forever. And I also remember us doing something together at La Casa Azul.
2: Oh my god, yes. Yes, yes. I think we more than it, once. More than once we did a couple of things Hi there. Aurora. Aurora, we love you and we we're, still miss you. I know you're tired of hearing that. Yeah, but we still miss you and we love you. And
0: we're gonna tag you when this episode comes out so you're gonna have to see your naming print with That's the, like it. I said so Nanny nanny
2: nanny.
0: All right, so um let's talk about your trajectory to becoming the wonder that you are today. We're going to get to the denouement soon enough. But when you grew up in, in the Bronx, right? No,
2: nope, I was born and raised in a barrio. You were born and raised in a barrio? Yeah. For some reason, yeah. I thought you were born in the boogie down. Because I've been living in the boogie down for the last several decades oh okay but okay I was born and raised in a barrio. I grew up on 117 and second avenue I oh was wow a, I was a little kid in the 60s during the during the uh civil rights movement did and they have uh, the houses
0: yet by uh, by 117 and second avenue
2: no it was all tenement buildings it was all tenement buildings uh, okay I grew up in uh in an old tenement building that had the bathtub in the kitchen and my family migrated to a barrio from
0: the 1930s. Wow, oh, you're, so you're Mayflower like yeah. my family. Yeah. I joke yeah. about that. Yeah, it's Cause true. Because I, ha- I had a, uh, a woman on that also had roots in your same neighborhood, like one eighteenth, one nineteenth, second second avenue, and her family were marine tigers. Well, one yeah. of her family, yeah. well, her mom, came over in the marine tiger, and mm-hmm. the father used to used to like tease her about it. Right, and I was like, yeah, because if your family came here from, we're, we're Puerto Rican. Mm. Hello, hello, <laughs> but if your family is from Puerto Rico. And you came here before World War II, mm, right. you're almost, that's almost like Mayflower for Puerto Ricans. Yeah. My father's family came here in 1928. Wow. I have a
2: photograph of my grandmother, who she looks like a friggin' flapper. Shh, I sh- have one of those. My great-granda Rosa, who's no longer with us, obviously, I have this one picture of her as a flapper. And and it's weird because when I was a kid, she was like really into the church and doing the rosarios when people passed mm-hmm. away. And then I'm looking at this picture, and he's like, she was like hot looking. But well, she was like eighteen, yeah, probably. Yeah, she probably was yeah. eighteen. And so my my family history goes that far back. Well, very typical build, very typical building of the era. Um, People would uh, migrate from from the island, come in on the on the Marine Tiger. Then you had another boat that was called Guamo. Uh, some of them were named after the pueblos. I oh, never, really? Yeah, I never That's interesting. That I didn't out. know yeah. that. I only I,
0: Marine Tiger is the only one that I ever really knew. Yeah, Tell me more a, about that. There was
2: one that was called Guamo. I found that out doing some research when I was writing my one woman show in the '90s, because um, it's an autobiography, and so I thought that was interesting. Um, but uh, my building, like, my, my mom and I were on the second floor. The third floor was my great grandma Rosa with my grandfather. And then, of course, it was so funny because, like, for the Puerto Ricans that moved to the Bronx, it was like, oh, ellos viven en el Bronx. I know. You know, like, en la tercera. And then I would get meaning 3rd Avenue yeah, for yeah, the yeah. audience. Yeah, yeah, And I would get confused because Mike said I was 3rd Avenue. Right. In uh, Manhattan. Okay, in Manhattan. In Manhattan. And um, so I grew up in that period. You know, we had La Marqueta, which was... The market. Was, was A big open-air market. It was actually houses. It was houses running from 110th Street in Lexington all the way to 116th Street. And it Street. was by Park Avenue underneath
0: where the Metro North is. Yeah.
2: It was under the Park Avenue L. And... My whole childhood was all around that area, that neighborhood. Um, my pub, my my hot Catholic school is, which is still there, um, was on 117 and Park. And you had bodegas all over the place, and a lot of mom and pop stores. Um, very community based, even though we were extremely poor because we were. I'm not gonna, you know, try to make it sound any more yeah. than what it no, was. I mean- um, you don't have to sugarcoat it, yeah, it, it. was considered a ghetto. It was considered it was a, a ghetto. Uh, garbage did not get picked up in my neighborhood yep. regularly. Yep. Were uh, there were junkies and, and bums and drunks. and uh, well, and so Bums are what we used to call homeless. Homeless, right. And, and so we, you know, I have my bum stories, but I'm not going to get into them. <laughs> but I remember when I was a kid, we had we had two bums. One was named Leroy, and the other one, her name was Geneva. And Leroy would be the the bum that never bothered anybody. All he wanted was a quarter. And so, but everybody made him earn the quarter because they would tell him in their broken Spanish, you know, we'll give you a quarter if you help me with those boxes over there. <laughs> we'll give you a sandwich from the bodega if you sweep the, the sidewalk. And so in a sense, even though we were poor and these were even poor businesses because they didn't make a lot of money, there was this sense of helping people. It was like... You know, Leroy, no, le di una peseta pa botar la basura, you know, with stuff like that. Yeah, we'll give you some money if
0: you throw out the garbage.
2: And then Geneva, Geneva, God bless her, if she hadn't been in the condition she was in, that lady probably would have been uh, a mainstream singer in the Bible industry because after she would get drunk, she would start singing gospel Wow. at 6 o'clock in the morning. Oh, my God. And she would just open her mouth and start singing gospel. And at first people would, would tolerate it. Cause that was the other thing about living in a Barrio. You had a little bit of everybody in there. You had you had African American, you had Puerto Ricans, even though the Puerto Ricans were the dominant cultural group, but you still had the Italians that were still still living around there. And then there was Geneva. There was and, and she used to sing and everybody was cool until she started singing past a certain time. And then you would hear somebody open the window. Shut up! Shut up! Did somebody want to throw something at her? But um, it was that kind of it was that kind of neighborhood, you know. And I and I went to school there. Um, got in, I got attracted to the arts from the seventh grade. Wow. Yeah. Wow. Because we had what? What was the of, trigger? What was the trigger in seventh grade? Oh my gosh! It was. You went to Catholic school. I went to Catholic school. Did you? We did had a drama club. Okay, that was it. <laughs> that was it. And, um, so what was the, the trigger? What the, made the you decide to become a performer? The trigger was actually uh, this teacher that was doing his dissertation from Columbia University. used to teach drama, um, and he wanted us to learn how to do plays. Wow. Yeah, and since it was his...
3: And so this was like program. like around 1970. This
2: was 1970, 69, uh, 1970, and and my mother didn't want me to get into the arts. Of course not, because you know, my ma- my father was a musician, and he was you know he was a mm-hmm. MIA and all the yeah. drama. That was that was yeah. the, with was my like, family. No, too you're gonna go into medicine? I'm like I am, and I'm like no, but I want to be dancing and singing like Judy Garland, and I'm like what? No, you're going to medicine. Anyway, long story short, um, we did we started doing uh, theater and. I learned the the rudimentary fundamental things about theater in grade school, as in costumes, as in blocking, and 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 uh, and learning your lines. And the first play I wow. did was The Miracle Worker. Wow! In seventh grade. In seventh grade. This is
0: why we need arts in the schools, people. Yeah, it saved and my they life. they
2: wanted this. art saves S- everybody's saves, life. Saves lives. And and uh, the first thing I was doing was I was. I played Annie Sullivan. Wow! And I learned uh, that was the Anne Bancroft I, part. That was the Anne Bancroft part, and I learned sign language to 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 do that. Yeah. So when I um, when I saw that I loved it, I just gravitated to this, and it's and it's and it's what I always tell my students because I work in a university: follow your passion if there's that thing that makes you feel like, oh, my God, this is what I got to do, you really have to follow it. And so that was the beginning of uh, of me getting involved in the theater and went on to just continue trying to do it uh, as much as I could.
0: Well, did you go to a performing arts high school? Nope, was not allowed. Mm. Uh, did you go to a performing arts college? Nope. Not allowed? Not allowed. Because the perception at this time, if, and I don't, with la- many Latino families, was that artists were sucia. Yes. That artists were junkies. Artists were hooers. Uh-huh. Artists didn't pay their rent. Artists were just, like, dirty, dirty
2: people. Well, with my story, it's a little different because my mother was terminally ill, and I took care of my mother until she mm. died when I... My mother died when I was 16
3: years oh old. Oh, my God, I didn't know that. So
2: um, I was her caretaker from... from when she was diagnosed with the illness. So I was pretty much a child caretaker from the age of nine to 16. But my drama teacher, when I was finishing, because back then you went to school from the first to the eighth grade. Ninth grade was considered high school. Right. And he did come to my house with the papers, and he tr- tried to talk her into letting me apply to um, the High School of Art and Design. Mm. I don't know what it's called now. I think it's a different name.
0: That's the one I wanted yeah. to go to, too, and I couldn't and, get there either.
2: Um she just told him no nope she's going into medicine and that's not how my life turned out. So moving forward, I never went to a professional school. Uh, what I did was because it was the 70s and as, as I and I raised myself and I worked all the time, I knew that that was something I wanted to do so at 21 or 19 or 20, I used to go to Henry Street settlement Oh, take wow. take acting classes. Now,
0: how did you find out about Henry Street Settlement? Um, well, just, that still exists.
2: It's still there. One of the few out, things I, that are still I, there. I don't even remember how I found it. Well, you know what? It found
0: you. because it you found It found me, you because yeah. you were supposed to be there. That was, was your path. I was supposed to be there. I believe and, that.
2: And I started, and at that time, they had what was called the Hispanic Playwrights Program, mm. which was run by a director by the name of Carla Pinza. And so I went and I, st- and I just started studying. I, I fell in love with scene study. I fell in love with, um, with monologues, uh, character preparation, voice development. And so that became my life. That was what I worked for. So therefore, I, re- I never wanted to work a full-time job. I wanted only to temp because I needed to go to my dance class, my voice class, my speech class, um, and always dancing, even though I was never a professional dancer. And I had an amazing, amazing opportunity. I, I worked, believe it or not, my first time in theater was working with Latino directors. Wow. Yeah, because I went into the American uh, side of it later on, but my fir- my early years, I worked with... Uh, Who were some of the people uh, with whom you Adrienne worked? Eliane Cadilla was my first teacher, which she now le- lives in, in, Flor- in uh, Puerto Rico, and she found me on LinkedIn uh, about like four three years ago, and she's like, are you Maria Ponte from Henry Street Settlement? And I said, yes, and, and this lady was so good, and so... I studied with her, and that's where I learned about ensemble acting. Wow. And that's where I made friends with the playwright Edwin Sanchez. Edwin and I have been friends for decades. Um, we had Scott, uh, Scott Elliott, who was African American. Um, our group was just made up of a little bit of everybody that represented New York it wasn't just about, oh, it's going to be Latino theater and it's only going to be Latino. We worked with everyone. It was nice is because people bring in their own different cultural backgrounds. Yeah, And then you feel like you're learning from each other. So from Henry Street, I went on to the Puerto Rican Traveling Theater. I know them. Uh, they had they used to have a great school and gracias for Miriam Colon, man.
0: Yes, God bless that woman. Miriam Colon opened
2: my first agent.
0: Let's talk about Miriam Colon for a second because there there are people that are listening to this that are not in the United States and they might not know anything about Puerto Rican history or Mm -hmm. how important Miriam Colon is to the arts, not just for Latinos but But to the arts in general.
2: general. Miriam Colon. Was a a fabulous, fabulous Puerto Rican actress. She started out in Hollywood in the fifties. She played uh, the traditional cultural roles of the you know the Mexican woman, the Native American, and she played up. You know she worked with real big names like Marlon Brando. She worked with, um, I believe, if my memory serves me right, she might have been in a couple of movies with um, uh, with some of the big name Western. Mm. Uh, uh, Western actors like John period. Wayne and like stuff, a John, like a John Wayne, but I'm not, but maybe sure. not him. Yeah, but I don't want to yeah. misquote. Yeah. Um, like I always say, now that we have Google, you can Google her and you can find out about yeah. her whole history. But was so key about Miriam that was that made her important, particularly for Puerto Rican actors and actresses and artists, was that she just didn't stay an actress, she became. A entrepreneur by creating the Puerto Rican traveling theater, which was a school from scratch. From scratch
0: in Times Square.
2: In Times Square, which is a place where there was junkies the and bombs and drugs. Times Square is not what we what you see no, right now. No, it was worse than Taxi Driver. For those of you who come to New York to visit, Times Square was not Disney. No, go,
0: go, it go, was, go. Netflix, was, a movie named Taxi yeah. Driver. As that's of fact, what it was. They just
2: decided to make a series called The Deuce. Oh yeah, saw, yeah! I just saw the the promo. Right, that's cable. used to call forty-two. Like, the Deuce. It was called the yeah. Deuce, and it was it was. I would not take your children there are no. now junkies, then, bums, but, drunks, and, and who is and a lot of and crime. and, and a lot of porno yes. theaters. Yes, I mean, it was just. But, in that, in that, in that, in that craziness, here was Miriam Colon creating a space for. Artist. That building on Forty Fourth Street, which is still there today. Street and the school actually used to be near the old Times Square building, which used to be on Forty Third Street between Seventh and Eighth. And you registered for classes, and you studied, and you had monologue, scene study, and then at the end of the year, you did a whole showcase. And she would rent out a space. And what people don't understand is that this lady really used to invite casting directors and agents
0: because she was known people knew her work
2: to see you perform and she always stayed in the background she never really was one of these folks that you know hey hi here i am and so i remember i i I did my segment um because i'm doing talking really fast here and skipping over a lot of years but i did my segment of the showcase about Two weeks later, and this is how far back I'm going, folks. There were things called answering machines. Uh-huh. There were little boxes hooked up to your house phone. So I'm talking about an era before the technology we have today. And so, if you 80s, yeah. So if you like were out all day, you had no way to know who the heck was looking for you until you got home. Or you could call, or your, answer could call your, from your answering pay machine phone and, from a payphone and, and put in your and your code. Put in your code. So anyway, I come home and I get a message from this guy and he was an agent and he started sending me out on auditions and that's when I discovered the discrimination that existed mm. in in another level of the arts because I would go on auditions I am not the traditional looking Hispanic woman with the flowing hair and the arch eyebrows and You know, uh, at that time, if I said my name, they would go, oh, Maria, like West Side Story? And I'm like, no, Maria as in Maria. Oh, but they must have named you after Maria. I've left West Side Story. I'm like, no, my mother named me Maria because that happens to be the main name in my family. So it was Rosa Maria, Carmen Maria, and I was Maria. Oh, no, no, no. And the way people used to just brush you off and ignore your identity was so horrible Horrible! it was this and if you didn't look like what they were looking for if you didn't look the part you wouldn't get the job right and i think one of the most out one of the the things that stick out in my head is i went on this voiceover audition for a education promo and they wanted me to sound like a uneducated latina with broken english and so when i read the lines the guy tells me i'm so sorry we can't use you and i said why he says um, can you dumb down your language? I said, "Excuse me." He goes, "You, you. I'm sorry. You sound too educated. You sound too white." What? Oh my God! And and when oh. I would go on real auditions, you had know, you had the three minutes to sing the song, the three minutes to do the 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 monologue, and I would walk in and they would look at me and go, "You know, I'm sorry. You look African American, and we're looking for someone that looks more Hispanic." So. When you're
3: living uh, that my eyes My
0: eyes are rolling because, like, I'm speechless because it's such, such so, the truth, because yeah. people don't know what we are. People only nope. see things as in white and black, and they don't know about the millions of shades of brown and beige and how we're all just this beautiful blend and yep. mixture, and you
2: can't put us in a box. So just to mess everybody up, finally after about 20 years when I got it, I started writing my stories.
0: Yeah, that's what we all do. That's and what I, I started, started doing, too. I my
2: stories, and I went to the most, I, I went to school very late. Um, I went back to school to do my degrees in my 30s. So I, I have my B.A. from Marymount Manhattan College up on the Upper West East Side. I went in as a theater major. I had no idea that it was a national program. I auditioned. Uh, I used Lorraine Hansberry's monologue from *The Sign in Sidney Brustein's Window*, which has to do about going on an audition. Um, and so I did this monologue. Had no clue. You Una loca. I'm like, okay, I'm an audition for this. And I went in there and I auditioned. And all those years that I studied at Henry Street, uh, the Puerto Rican traveling theater, um, the Actors Studio, all came out in that in that monologue. So it's luck
0: is preparation meets uh-huh. opportunity.
2: And so I got into the program. Little did I know that at that time in that year, they only ex- accepted 18 students from the entire U.S., and I was one of the 18. Problem was, is when I started taking the classes, I started seeing that I was doing what I already learned. And so I switched majors to English literature, and that's when everything came boom. Wow. And I, I started reading... Every, everything they gave me, it was like give, putting me in a candy store. I studied Joyce. I studied Shakespeare. I studied the Henrys, the Richards. Um, I, I fell in love with, um, oh my God, my Canadian writers, Margaret Atwood, um, Alice Monroe, uh, 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 Flannery O'Connor for, for, the, for the Southern writers. I felt mad love for... All of my Latino writers, because I also minored in Latin American literature. Long story short, that opened my eyes to another world, and and I made James Joyce my thesis from my, as a, my senior thesis, and and that's when I met Sor Juana Ines de la Cruz, who is the Mexican poet, and um, I I wrote a one woman show based on. Her biography from Octavio Paz. And what was the name of it that w- show? It's called "I Will Not Be Silenced," which I'm actually getting invited to perform at Monterrey University in in October. Was that your first solo show that you no, wrote? No, my first solo show was my was when my one woman show, the huge thing called Lágrima de mis madres," mm. and I wrote about the growing t- up tears of a mother. Ba- yeah, I wrote about my mother, my grandmother, and and growing up in a barrio, and um, where did you perform that? Was, I performed that originally um, with a a company called Shotgun Productions. So Patricia Klausner and Stuart Shulman, if you ever listen to the show, I'm gonna send you the link because you know I always give you a shout out. Um, They were my mentors and taught me how to write a real script. Wow! And I worked with professionals, and so at that time, Shotgun Productions had a commission was commissioned by the Rockefeller Foundation. The piece became part of a bigger piece called Tides of Intolerance, which focused on the different cultural backgrounds. This is all women. This is 1995. This is why when I see things now, I kind of chuckle because I'm like, no, we've been doing this work for a while. And it's good to kind of remind folks that there's a history behind all this stuff it's yes. not you know it, it's not just it didn't come out of a vacuum it, it and didn't and in it my didn't. time i was being referred to the women that were already doing one woman shows at that time which was Ann um she was famous for doing a rodney king mm-hmm. one person show i remember show. that i i remember, yeah. I remember going to see that. see that yeah i mean that was like at the, the public theater a, the, um and, and i've been asked recently like I need to bring it back because when I think about it now, it is a it is a historical period piece because I wrote the characters in the language that they spoke in that time. So I write my mother, like the way she spoke in the sixties, you know, like she would answer the phone and say city morgue. And if I said, ma, what time is it? Half past the cloud, cow's ass according to the moon. And I would be like, what the heck is that? <laughs> you know? And it's, it's the yes. way people used to talk growing up in the thirties and the forties, like you come from toity and toy right. that's what it was we did i remember now we did um the stories for bridget
0: yes at
2: columbia we worked the, five
0: borough, the five borough story project the five
2: borough story project bridget bartolini there you go
0: i love you mm-hmm. um
2: we got a long history we do
0: oh my god this yeah, is so cool yeah. so uh, you have a couple of books when did so when did you start segueing from theater to uh literature
2: the I I think the books really came out of me writing the, the script. So you went from the stage to the to, page. To the page. That's kind and of another, like what I did, too. Yeah. Yeah. Um, I found that I had other stories I wanted to tell. And you did all of this with a day job because you're an yeah, educator and yeah. you work for Fordham University, correct? Yes, I do. Uh, this is my 19th year at Fordham. Wow. Yeah, 19 years. Um uh, but they know that I'm an artist and they support me, and uh, I've performed actually at the school. I've done that's I've done, great. I've, I've not even get paid because I work there and there's a conflict of interest, but to just kind of show the students that there's more to us, particularly working in a very predominantly white yes. university, because I will never. My my goal, my initiative there is the diversity programming. And so I'm very aware of the environment I'm in, but I've never been told not to do something. As a matter of fact, people really admire that I still, you know, like people like, you still do that? And I'm like, I'll always do that because that's the first thing I want to do. And so it is hard because you have to juggle full-time responsibilities. Um, But I'm at this place in my life where I'm okay if I don't make it to every open mic anymore. I try to support people when I can, but I'm also at a place where I like that I can give myself choices. Yes. And and not worry that I have to do this because tomorrow I have to put the Con Ed bill. You know? And I always say this to artists. You're going to be a working artist, you've got to find that little piece of bread and butter that's going to support you. Because at the end of the day, when you go on those auditions, girlfriend you need to do your hair yep. you need your makeup yep you need to you have need your eyebrows, your waxed. eyebrows gotta wax waxed. that chin and those teeth Waxing. and those teeth better be healthy mm-hmm. you know i mean so right there if you're you're becoming your own marketing project project yeah then not only that jobs are like the yeah. best place to learn about character building yeah because let me tell you once you learn how to work with people i and know all sorts of right you're like Damn, she's crazy, but I like it. <laughs> but
0: and think about it: the the, per, the co-worker that irritates you the most yep. is the person that you need to learn, learn f- a lesson from. lesson from. And there's some. I actually just had an epiphany about a similar thing like that with 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 an, an incident that had happened, and I was getting frustrated with yeah. it, and I was like, no, 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 no. This is what you need to learn from it. Right. Like the thought came, yeah. and it's like, why didn't I think of this 15 years ago, 20 years ago? Because mm-hmm. I'm thinking of it now.
2: And and in like that old saying, when the student is ready. Yeah, and this, and, and yeah. this is very true. And I and because I do work with, because yes, I am an elder who loves young people. But you know what? When you get old enough, like, these things happen. Yes. And
0: get and, and you've taken your mentorship of your students at Fordham one step further with the foundation that you started a couple of years ago
2: oh let's that. talk about okay. that because I think so, it's an amazing terrific thing so in 2014 um I decided in my madness and finishing my master's program that I just wanted to start something and then it occurred to me that in in our culture Latina women, after a certain age, are not recognized. Correct. We're invisible. We're invisible, and we fall into these self-made categories of Abuela. Abuela, the titi. Curandera. Curandera. Bruja. Bruja, which is fine. But I wanted to start acknowledging the history and the legacy of the women that opened the doors, like our pioneers. Like, who were the first educators that went to... To um, the mayor's office in the 60s to fight for bilingualism. A lot of people don't know Antoja. I'm talking about Yolanda Sanchez. I'm talking about the educators who fought with the Lindsay administration to get bilingual programs introduced into the Board of Education here in New York. A lot of people think bilingualism, uh, unless they're studying education and that's part of their 101 core stuff when they're getting their degrees. Bilingualism was born in New York and out in Chicago with the Chicanos. And so these were the fighters. Like, how are we honoring them? And so I wanted, because I do work in in career services, and and most of my day job is about careers and and looking at the economy and and businesses and working with employers, I said, well, how about if I just kind of create something where I focus on six categories, um, education, law, literature, community service, the arts, and healthcare medicine, and start looking for women that have been in those fields more than 25 years, who have stayed. There are people that go into fields, and they stay, because that is their passion, and that's their calling. And and so, 2014, I decided to do a lunch. It's called Latina 50+. Plus. Um, and it's the word spelled out, not the plus sign. And what I did was I want, I gave a lunch. Uh, I used my paycheck and my income tax return to throw this luncheon. I, I brainstormed with Olga Ayala, who's a fabulous artist, and she, she came up. We, between my ideas and her sketches, we came up with the design of the award. And I selected the first six women. For that year, and when I proposed, I wrote the mission statement. I, I just said, let me see where this is going. Long story short, uh, this year was the fourth year of Latina Fifty Plus, and and we've honored. Uh, because now I'm a nonprofit, I, I'm working on getting more funding, but um, I do get the support from AARP, and this year I'm focusing on funding because our monies is getting very tight, and I'm still paying out of pocket. Each year when this event comes up, I'm still going in my wallet and going, okay, I gotta pay this. But I do it because this is my passion and this is the legacy I wanna leave behind. Ironically enough, it attracts younger women. Women in their 30s and their 40s come to my luncheons, they come to the networking events, and I'm like, why are you guys here? And they're like, because we need this. We need to know what we're gonna have moving forward and i think that that's a real breakthrough considering we live in a society and a culture where youth is supposed to be the magic bullet to life that is correct and, and if we are not preparing ourselves for when your your body doesn't move as swiftly as it did when you were 20 and you and some days you get up and you're like your brain is going, yeah, man, we're going to do this today. We're going to do that. And your body's saying, really? Like, where you think you're going? I know. That's how I function now. But you don't have to hit the panic button. You can accept, like, you know what? I did a lot, and it's okay for me to slow down and pick things and take better care of your health. And so Latina 50 Plus is dedicated to the elders. And so from that, I created a scholarship for community service under... Um, Evelina Antonetti's name, Dr. Dr. Antonetti, was one of our biggest activists here in New York. Um, and her sister, Elba Cabrera, and her, and her daughter, Anita Antonetti, gave me permission to uh, name the community service scholarship. Uh, depending on what kind of money I raise for the year, they select the person they want to give the scholarship to, and we award one to them. The other one is for education. Um, If I have funding, I also give that to a Latina woman 50 and up who's going back to school. Oh, that's great. Or in some kind of professional development program. And the other reason why I started, this was because I wanted to break stereotypes. I wanted to show that we are not just what people think we're supposed to be, what they see on TV or what they read on the news or what is projected in film. No, we are doctors, we're lawyers, we're educators, we are we are health professionals, we have wonderful, wonderful people working in the mental health field, we have our artisans, we have our writers, so we just, so that that stigmatism, I wanted to break that, particularly coming from a place where when I was trying to break into the business, I was just, as soon as I walked into the door, I was already stereotyped. You know? and, and people, you know, um like the program I get a lot of I get a lot of positive re- remarks this year one of our recipients was Daisy Martinez the chef we gave her the award for education because she also is the admissions dean for the culinary french school yeah Lacombe. and yeah and so I'm like what like wow like This lady wrote all these cookbooks, had a show on PBS. She's moving forward with her own website and a blog. But at the end of the day, she's also committing time to help others. People
0: need to know about women like this because I'm going to say that I was... The little girl sitting in a half a bedroom in my top floor tenement walk up in the Bronx Mm -hmm. wondering how the hell I was going to be an artist. And there was I had to claw my way and do it like with trial and error and lots of error and error and error. Mm -hmm. And, you know, for the, the young girls that are out there today, at least now, thanks to foundations like yours and so many others, at least there's a place where young people can see that, yes, she wrote a book this could be done. Uh Like, when I read Sandra Cisneros's... um House on Mango Street. Oh, yeah, that's I never a thought about like book, yeah. when I was telling my stories at the Moth, people would say, "When are you going to make them into a book? When are you going to make them into mm-hmm. a book?" And mm-hmm. I'm like, oh, "I don't know. I don't know." Because I had no idea. I didn't think that that was even though I had written theater right. and I had done theater, I didn't think that I could write a book. But um, a friend who I can't think of right now. Oh my God. Oh Bonnie Joy. She Bonnie Joy. She gave me House <laughs> on Mango Street for my birthday, mm-hmm. and when I read this book and I saw that some of the
2: chapters were two pages, the sh- stories were short. Yeah. I was like, I thought this can be done right and i think when you're not because now you're kind of you're segwaying into writing i think what what scares people is they start thinking of the end product right where you can't think of the end product. No. you just have to think of the product you just gotta th- wait what is that story you want to tell mm-hmm. because once you put it out on paper you can overwrite as much as you want because at the end of the day you're going to edit and, and you have to trust another set of eyes.
0: And a story never ends. It never it, really ends. It just stops in an interesting place. Right. And you have right. so many interesting places where you've begun and ended stories. And I think you have something you're going to um, read for us today.
2: Sure, sure. Um, so my second book uh, is called The Gift of Loss, and it's a memoir. But I also know that when I wrote this, I was ready to write this. And one of the things I didn't do in all of my work as an artist, as a performer, writing my one-woman show, was I never would acknowledge my father. Interesting. Because I wasn't taught to love my father. My father, my mother and my father separated by the time I was three. My father was um, a a chronic alcoholic, you know. Uh, Someone wrote an article on me, and they called him a drunk, and I cringed because I, as you understand more about life, I understood that it wasn't a drunk. He had a disease. And so and and it killed him by the age of forty one. He was also a very talented musician. He was a percussionist. He could play timbales, conga, and 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 so that's where I get my I get that from my dad. And so I wanted to honor him um in this book, even though I'm acknowledging my mom. I'm gonna actually Start at the beginning, because these are very short. Okay. And and it's in five sections, so this is part one. It's called, My Heart Beats With My Father's Clave Beat, Rhythmic Movements of Bloodlines That Cannot Be Erased. In Rhythm, my father was a man of medium height, brown complexion, eyes the size of saucers, sparkling with energy, pupils constantly moving, observing, trying to swallow the whole world in an instant, an arched (coughs) eyebrow, frown curled up into an arrow pointing nowhere. Wiggly lines forming across across clear skin smelling like English leather cologne. Polished fingernails, dark chocolate suit, small cold pinky ring like a flashlight. He would twirl my mother, her small waist taffeta dress, and they would dance, swinging, chasing silhouettes in the mirrors of blue red faded dance halls. He looked to be taking her in, swallowing her whole. I was a little girl and wanted these moments to last forever, but they would not. Tattoo. Whenever I saw my dad, he always cried with a shaky voice that would rattle like rain, hitting a window pane. I would stand apart from him as if he was contagious, remembering my instructions so when he cried, I didn't. He knew he couldn't give me anything. Whenever I saw my dad, he would shout out to anyone that would listen, Ethes es mi hija. This is my daughter. Sometimes he would point to the sky and shout as if the gods could hear him. One day he showed me the the tattoo on his left arm, rolling up his sleeve and proudly pointing at the blue ink letters that said, Mi hija. The tattoo had my birth date. I had done it. I had it done the day you were born, he told me. I looked, and as instructed, didn't say anything. All I could think of was, why didn't he put my name? That is just beautiful. Thank you.
0: Maria, thank you so much for being on Fish Out of Agua. I'm calling this the GTS, the Google That Shit episode, because you have just... Sprouted like a fountain. So much education. I'm hoping that people that listen to this show are going to be like on their phones saying, who's that woman? And oh, who's that woman? And so who's much. that woman? Thank and, you. and if you have one thing to say to that little girl or boy so, sitting in a top floor tenement walk-up wanting to be an artist and not
2: knowing how she's going to get there, what would you say to her? Don't lose your passion and find someone that will help you. Someone that will be your mentor and trust and encourage you to be more than what you because that's what happened to me. Thank you, Maria. Thank you for being on the Thank show. You. Woo!
0: And we're back with Fish Out of Agua on Radio Free Brooklyn. Let's hear another song Maria picked for this episode. And when you hear what it is, you'll know it pretty much describes this powerhouse to a T. Yep, there ain't no stopping this muhel. <laughs>
4: Things are finally coming around I know we've got A long, long way to go And where we'll end up I don't know But we won't let nothing Hold us back We're putting our show together We're polishing up our act if you
0: Ain't No Stoppin' Us Now from McFadden and Whitehead's eponymous 1979 album. And guess what, kids? That's our show this week. You have been listening to Radio Free Brooklyn and Fish Out of Agua with Michelle Carlo. Stay tuned for Brooklyn Bandstand next. And we'll close with this final song picked by Maria. This unique cover of Somewhere Over the Rainbow by the late native Hawaiian musician, entertainer, and activist Israel... Ka ka viva ole. I'm not pronouncing that right at all, but it's from his 1990 album, Ka Anoi. His name means the fearless eyed, which I think is a pretty awesome name, no matter how you pronounce it. See you next week, kids.